0: Good morning, Brennan. Good morning, Beverly. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? You know, I'm. I am. uh, I'm in my basement dungeon of a bedroom slash office, and I have both dogs, but they're quiet, so I'm winning. I think one of my children is still asleep, and one of them is awake and quiet. So we're 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 winning over here.
1: That is really good. Yeah, uh, my kids are uh, uh, with Catherine right now, um, uh, hopefully uh, roller skating around, uh, so I am grateful, too, to have a, a bit of time apart from the madness, uh, and then I'll dive back into it uh, uh, as soon as as soon as this is done. But in any event, uh, and how are you doing, Beverly?
2: I'm great. Uh, it's a little early here. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of the country than on the coast there, But but I'm fine. But well, same-
1: and... We are so grateful uh, that you are not only up early, but willing to join with uh, a pair of um, uh, sp- folks, biblical scholars who uh, cannot hold a candle to not only your uh, teaching ability and your research ability, but, uh, but of your uh, record of publishing. Um, we are really, really grateful to have you on Uh, Everybody, if anyone doesn't know who this is, this is Beverly Gaventa. Uh, She is uh, not uh, only uh, a a well-renowned professor um, and a scholar of Paul, uh, but uh, covers the New Testament uh, more broadly, Uh, and today is with us to help us uh, dive into the fourth chapter of Philippians and conclude our Office Hours Bible Study. We're thankful to everyone who has joined with us uh, so far on our journey through Philippians. Um, uh, We'll we'll return to this at the end, but just a brief announcement that uh, this is our last week of meeting um, in this particular configuration talking about Philippians. We're going to take a break next week for Memorial Day weekend, and we'll be back to talk about Job uh, for five weeks um, after that. So in any event, uh, uh, Beverly, we have um, a kind of tradition that we've started here on, um, on office hours, and uh, that's that we recognize that none of us reads the Bible alone, uh, kind of by ourselves. Um, we generally uh, uh, bring with our, uh, bring to our reading um, our lenses that uh, we inherit. Some of them, some of them we kind of choose and and get to to tinker with. Um, but so we usually ask the question: What kind of hermeneutical presuppositions, or what kind of theological presuppositions, um, uh, do you uh, consciously bring with you to to reading biblical texts?
2: Well, first of all, let me thank the two of you for having me and for, for doing this work. Um, my own Congregation University Presbyterian Church here in Austin has been using this in our faith and, and life class, and folks have appreciated it very much. So hats off to both of you for your work on this. Um, so I've been watching you every week, and I know that uh, some of the things folks have said with which I, you know, I to which I nod my head, yes. Uh, we all read from our own positions and and we bring our own experience to our reading, and uh, our, our life experience, our gender, our uh, station, our, our race, affects how we read. Um, so I would just wanna add a couple of things to that that are, that are important to me. One is that we never read the same text twice. Uh, once in a while, I get somebody who wants to pick a fight and say, well, why is there such a thing as New Testament study anyway? We've had this text for 2,000 years. What can you possibly have to say that hasn't been said? Right. One answer to that is, well, we have a lot more text than people had 1,000 years ago. We have information. We have material remains, archaeological remains that we didn't have. But the other is we have different lived situations and... You know, the most obvious illustration of that is that we're all asking questions we weren't asking four months ago. We we literally do not read Philippians the way we read it four months ago. Well, literally we do, but we are not the same readers we were. So our reading changes. Um, my The second thing I would say is something I heard uh, Old Testament scholar Jim Sanders say in a... Uh, an intro to Hebrew Bible class more years ago than I'm going to admit, <laughs> where one day he, he, he just stopped and turned around and said, if you are reading the Bible and it makes you feel good and warm and cozy inside, you can be sure you're reading it wrong. <laughs> And, uh, you know, some years on, some decades on, I would quibble with that just a little bit. There are times, and this is one of them, when we do need to read, we can read for comfort, and there's nothing wrong with that. But one of the things that's important to me is to understand that the text speaks not just about other people and the things they have done or aren't doing, it also speaks about me and my community. And so any, I'm, I'm rather suspicious of readings that find their targets elsewhere. Um, another way to say it is I, I fully endorse what scholars call the hermeneutic of, <clears throat> of suspicion, but I also think the her- hermeneutic of suspicion has to start at home. I have to be, be mm. uh, on guard about my own tendency to reinforce my own presuppositions. Right. So, I, so I, I suppose one of the things that gets at is that I do have a strong sense that the text has something to say to me. Uh, and that I, um, I find when I stay with a text for a long time, so this is not something we can do on the fly. But when I have lived with a text for a long time, it 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 always makes me uncomfortable somewhere. It always finds a way to um, uh, to question some of my presuppositions and to expose, to hold up a mirror to my own shortcomings. So that would be a place to start. Yeah. Thank you. Thank that, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a rich, rich discussion, yeah. And uh, I mean, I, one, one thing that this kind of strikes me generally about this, I'm going to switch to gallery view just so we can all... We can all see each other like the Brady Bunch now. Um, right. But uh, uh, one, one thing that strikes me about the that uh, <clears throat> there's, there's kind of this kind of like ex- excessiveness to the text. Like we, a lot of people imagine that Christians or any Bible reader can just kind of read whatever they want into the text. And that might be true. But if we take the text seriously, uh, it, it almost it, it can be like kind of like, <clears throat> like a dialogue partner. And it can sometimes pull us up short or ask questions we never really imagined that we would ask or, or right. surprise us in a way.
2: Right. Well, uh, one of my favorite quips is uh, from, it, Wayne Booth attributes this to anonymous. And I think probably in this case, anonymous is also Wayne Booth, great, great literary critic who wrote once there are many ways to read any text wrong. There are also many more ways. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I did that wrong. There are many ways to read any text. There are also many more ways to read any text wrong mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes in our urge to uh, to to enjoy a proliferation of readings, we forget that we can just get there there are readings that are just plain wrong yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, right. That violate the text and violate um, the words on the page mm-hmm. well, I just want to.
0: I wanna hold up uh, what you said about living with a text because in my experience, um, uh, I was a student of yours when you were at Princeton Seminary and that was one of the most formative experiences um, was that you live with a text. I, I teach course of study, often remark about course of study students. In my, one of my first times teaching a class, I had a, a pastor tell me you know, that when he started, um, he used to spend hours preparing for a sermon but now that he had been doing it for you know a dozen years or so, he could pick up a text, you know, get the text that morning and be ready to preach on it that afternoon. And I was like, no. and he was very proud of this fact. And I was like, no, I think this is what we're trying to teach against, right? That, that actually what happens is you need to commit to living with this text. You need to, in your book on Romans, you use the language of linger. You need to linger with this text. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems so opposite in our day and age of, Instant information, uh, you know, short abbreviated list of the top ten things you can do to gain weight or lose weight, whichever you're looking for. Um, that that you you recommend a way of reading that is is slower, uh, more deliberative, um, and uh, and 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 actually takes a lot of work. Uh, that's the other thing uh, that I would would hold up. So. Grateful that you're uh, reminding us of that. And just wanting to say, in my own formation as a, as a reader of, of sacred texts, that's been very formative. Um, as well as the, the, the command to always ask new questions of the text. I use that. If I should pay you for that, copyrighted. Um, I think it is copyrighted, in fact. Yeah, royalties for every time I say it in one of my classes about the value of a nickel. Of, yeah, <laughs> asking new questions.
2: Yeah, maybe Chris. That won't be obvious. That won't. That statement won't be clear to people who are listening in. But there is in the field of biblical studies a tendency to ask the same questions over and over and over again, and that's not a terrible thing. I mean, sometimes it's interesting to find out that that uh, the in Paul especially, you're apt to find exegetical discussions. About points that have been disputed for fifteen hundred years,
1: right?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a there's a there's a venerable history, but sometimes you can turn a text around, ask it a different, ask a question a different way, or venture another question and uh, open up a whole new way of thinking about a particular problem. And we do tend to get stuck in a kind of rut. You know, these are I, I've actually heard people say. Well, here's this text, and here are the four problems about it. And no, yeah. you know, Paul didn't write a, a, a list of problems. The yeah. psalmist didn't write a list of interpretive problems. The psalmist wrote or composed, you know, a text uh, for the for the worship of God, and so to to start to start looking at it as just a list of scholarly problems is already a kind of reductionistic, it's an impoverishment of the passage
1: yeah and I think but for both of those, like the, the 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 pastor who already knows what he wants to say, but also the scholar who already knows the problems, I mean the problem is we already think we know um, we don't allow ourselves to be surprised and, and so your, your suggestion to linger, um, I love that that uh, that that we, if if the if the, if the text isn't drawing up any new kind of questions in us, maybe maybe we're the problem.
2: yeah, and you know it's very easy for the likes of us to say oh the pastor does this you know the pastor is in a hurry but it's also the case that those of us who are in institutional settings are in a hurry because the dean is counting articles and the dean is counting research papers and presentations and and you know the tenure clock is ticking or the promotion clock so there's this there is this sense of i've got to get this done in a hurry and it's counter it's counter to the text we have, so
1: mm-hmm. yeah, a different kind of productivity, I guess right. yeah
0: okay, well, let's uh turn our attention now to uh the subject matter for this morning, which is Philippians four two through the end through twenty three and our passage starts with the mention uh, of two women, Euodia and Syntyche, um, who are mentioned in verses two and three of chapter four. And we, we thought uh, that it would be great just to start our discussion with these two women and what we might know about these women um, and use that as a way to sort of uh, get a wider picture of, of women in Paul's letters um, more generally. So, um, Beverly, who are these two women, um, uh, or what do we know about these two women uh, and their role in the Philippian community?
2: Well, you know, we know what Paul tells us, <laughs> uh, which is not much. I mean, and, and that's that's an important thing to say, right. isn't it? Because sometimes we get those questions, and there's sort of a sense that well, if we all consulted, uh, you know, Plautus's history of Uh, The early church, we would know who the... No, these are the sources we have. We don't have extra sources, about in this case, at least. Uh, And I find it interesting, it it would be interesting to go around and look at, say, commentaries over the last 50 years, uh, because I think it's not unlikely we would... And I haven't done that with Philippians. It's not unlikely we would find references to the two women as... Uh, evidence of how women are always squabbling, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I would bet that we would find some catty little remarks about women when when it's pretty evident from what Paul says that they are leaders in this com- community, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, the fact that they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel. Now, you know, we tend when it comes to women we tend to hear that sort of language as, oh, well, they helped set up the the cookies for the reception. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with that. I happen to like cookies myself, rather, more than I should. Um, And I'm happy to help set them up. But when Paul uses language of working in the gospel, that's, that's pretty standard language for him that has to do with apostolic labor. With spreading the gospel with teaching and preaching, so I think it's pretty clear that there's there is a conflict of some sort surprise, surprise, people have conflicts, uh, but these are uh, these are women in leadership, and they're important enough that he's, he 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 speaks out and identifies them and uh is in need of their coming together over whatever the topic might be yeah.
0: I re- so I I remember um I wrote a paper for you on, on this very word in your women in the letters of Paul class and I remember my mind just being sort of exploding when I realized that he was, it was a sort of a special term, and he elsewhere applies it to uh, people who uh, most commentators would unquestionably regard as apostles, and yet hear the mention of these women gives interpreters some reason to sort of waffle. Well, we know that we know that they couldn't have played that place because, that role, because they were women, and yet he's, he would mention other people that we would definitely regard as in church position, leader, leadership positions. And just, I just remember uh, just how much my eyes were open just by looking at that, that one verb uh, in, in Philippians.
2: Yeah, that is, I mean, that's what you've just mentioned though is pretty standard procedure uh, that we assume we know about women and what they were doing or not doing. Mostly we think in terms of what they were not doing. And so when we see terms used of them, we always find ways to minimize them, to belittle. Them. Um and you know, you the classic example of that comes in Romans 16, uh, which I, I would love for us to talk about a little bit.
0: Please, yeah, let's, please, yeah. let's
2: let's do, yeah. So One of the things
0: that, that, you know, Paul doesn't say much about Uodi and Syntyche here, but he does say a lot about some women in Romans 16. Of course, it's not as theologically weighty as some people might think of other parts of Romans, and so they just skip past it, but there's some really important and vital information in Romans 16.
2: Yeah, there is, and that's why I typically start, when I teach a course on Romans, whether it's for a graduate seminar, or for uh, 45 minutes in a local congregation, I start with Romans 16, in part because Paul's letters, Philippians has the same effect on us. It has, they tend to have such abstract language uh, that it's hard to get a sense of a community. So when you start with the beginning and the end and you get names of people and you can think about them, you can uh, imagine a setting then it's a little easier to get something concrete. Now, in Romans 16, Paul, uh, Paul's not been to Rome. I think he's doing a lot of networking in this conclusion. Greet this person and that person. Um, he mentions a lot of women. And for many of them, he uses this similar language of working in the Lord or something even more specific. He starts by commending uh, a woman by the name of Phoebe and uh there's a very important uh description of her she is he calls her a deacon he doesn't call her a deaconess uh there is a very specific greek word diakonos um and he also says she is a prostatus a benefactor and the word means in the first sentence it means what it sounds like she's the a person who is supporting the work in some very specific, concrete way. Um, just a, another little note on the side about how to read. When I pick up a new translation of Romans or a new commentary on Romans, one of the first things I do is to look to see how these words are being translated. Because in the past, at least, diaconos was often translated as helper, and uh, or servant and you know diakonos is a term Paul has just used in chapter fifteen to refer to Christ. Right. So so you let's let's at least think about these as having the same kind of referent. Um, And a benefactor is not a a helpmaid. You know, a benefactor is a person who's paying your bills, in some cases, I mean, that's, that's the way this looks.
0: We would, we, would, we would be right to think of it, at least in intersecting with patronage, right? That, that yeah.
2: she's, she's yeah. his patron. Yeah, she is a, a patron. He, he uses a very specific term that is uh, the term for patron. And it's pretty clear that he commends her. She is the one who is bringing the letter. All right. So already you have blown the notion that women didn't go anywhere, you know, yeah. that women had no roles. Uh, she He does not mention a man with her. So either she is unmarried or widowed or some, in some way she is financially independent. Yeah. Uh, she's the deacon of the Church of Cancria, which is the port for Corinth. Um. So she is presumably with Paul in Corinth, in the circle of Paul. I'm not trying to say anything scandalous about her. Sure, yeah. (laughs) She is in the circle around Paul. And, you know, one of your first weeks you talked about collaboration in the writing of these letters. I imagine that as Paul is planning this letter... You know, what people did was they gathered around and they read, writers read drafts of things that they were thinking. They taught in small circles. And I suspect that as Paul is planning this letter, Phoebe is involved in it. You know, at the very least, if she's taking it, she is the one who's been charged with interpreting it. And I think she's the one who reads it in Rome. Um, I, you know, he doesn't name anybody else who could be doing it. So, you know, you, you, you kind of have to be a woman like me to get how important this is because, uh, Phoebe as the first interpreter of Romans in a line that stretches 2000 years and is notably male, right. is kind of fun for somebody uh, and encouraging for some of us.
1: And, and we can say that um, not only um, sort of later in Christian history, um, did these, some of these roles get obscured, the um, uh, roles of women and leadership roles in the church. I mean, we could even see in some of the later kind of Deutero-Pauline, like the, the household code, which right. seems to obscure and cover over um, some of the leadership roles of women, perhaps even an interjection into First Corinthians 14, right, uh, uh, telling right. women to be silent, which might even be a, an interpolation, right, a, a, an edit, editor, a later editor. Yeah. But but also in 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 the history of scholarship, scholars have literally changed the text, right, yes. to, to try to demote Junia, but also Nympha, who um, in the in the uh, letter of the Colossians, I mean, she runs the house church. Right and and she gets her name changed right. I mean, can you uh, comment on some of those actual physical changes to the letters?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, the most notorious is Junia in Romans twelve in Romans sixteen seven, where uh, Paul greets Andronicus and someone by the name of Junia. Now, in you know, this gets a little into the weeds, but in Greek, as you both know. The way that reads, it could be theoretically either a female name Junia or a male name Junius. Mm-hmm. The problem is, uh, there's a great book on this by Eldon Epp. Uh, the problem is that in in the extant text evidence we have of names from the first from the period, there is no evidence for a male name Junius, and ample evidence for a female named Junia, and in the first, minimally, the first thousand years of the church's life, it is assumed that this is a woman, St. Right. Right. Uh, uh, John Chrysostom, who was certainly no feminist, <laughs> talks about you know, June, how fabulous this woman must have been to be recognized among the apostles, um, and I, clearly what happened, it's not so much that there was a change in the text. But people started to sort of invent this man precisely because of what is said. And interestingly, um, I mean, even the King James has Junia. English translations up until the late 19th century most consistently have Junia. It's at the beginning of the 20th century, and I have yet to see a study. I think it's probably correlated with. a reaction against the suffragette movement wow that's, that's I mean that 's total hunch on my part okay, sure uh, in er, early twentieth century, all of a okay. sudden we find we find assertions that well, this could be a woman 's name, but because of the context that is because this person is called an apostle, it must be a man
0: yes wow. <laughs> because yes. and because we because we only we assume that only males were apostles based Correct. on yes. you know other parts of the literature and
2: right. Yeah. right well and it's important to say we assume that because of the book of acts right? right but it's quite clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul knows of the 12 and then he knows he says something about all of the apostles Paul does mm-hmm. not regard the 12 as the definitive group of apostles. If he did, he couldn't call himself one. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. Now, so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul thinks of other people also as having that name, in this case, Junia, so. So, uh, so,
0: so j- just to sort of recap, we've got these these women leaders mentioned in Philippians, and we've got these other women, and and the list. There's there's more women in sixteen, Romans sixteen, that are mentioned, but right. but certainly Phoebe, uh, who uh, who most likely had the role of delivering the letter, uh, probably had yeah. shaping the letter, and was maybe the first reader or interpreter of, of Romans for uh, the, the congregation or congregations there, and then a woman who's identified as an apostle, and this is all from uh, from the the New Testament author who is most frequently accused of being the one to limit the ro- women of role, the, the role of women in the church, and yeah, so yeah. I wonder if you could just, uh, I, I promise we'll get back to, we can go back to Philippians 4, but how do we make sense of, you know, Paul's reputation as anti-women and these texts that suggest a very different picture of Paul?
2: Well, I'm not going to try to argue that Paul was a a feminist, you know, and we have to be aware of uh, sort of finding what we want to find, right? Uh, I I think we see clear evidence that there are women in, in leadership. I also think we see places where Paul, surprise, surprise, is shaped by his own era right. and has gender norms that reflect the era. And we shouldn't expect anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is, as far as it, our interpretation goes, this is clearly one of those places where where you start depend determines what you will, uh, what you will discover. If you start with these, the, the clear evidence of women in leadership in these letters, then you read certain other passages in a different way. If you start with those, as, as some people do, if you start with First Timothy, right, right. then you have, then you, then you, you will inevitably go to Romans and say, oh, well, they really were just serving up the coffee. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, or they were teaching, I mean, I, you know, they were teaching, but they were only teaching the children. Uh, they weren't teaching uh, adults. They weren't teaching adult males, say. Uh, so it, it, it is a matter that the texts are complicated and they, they, don't, they don't lend themselves to a kind of flat, uh, interpretation. So it is important, I think, to uh, pay attention to where we start. Yeah,
1: thank you. Yeah, and <clears throat> yeah, it, it seems like those kind of assumptions yeah, inform like the way that people even think about Priscilla or Priscia and Aquila and That's, Nympha right. or Nymphus, you know, I mean, uh, so yeah, the, the, these inform so much of our readings, but also the way that Paul is arguing about marriage in First Corinthians 7. And when Paul is talking about, he, he kind of goes off on his, um, uh, Second Temple Jewish uh, interpretation, including Enoch, of like the relationship between men and women in First Corinthians. But then at the end of that says, but you know, l- l- let's not argue over this. Um, so it seems like Paul for him, like he, he doesn't fit within the uh, particular, like the, the typical assumptions of gender of his own day. I mean, he himself is an unmarried man working abroad um, and moving around um, l- like Jesus in some ways and uh, an unusual man for the, for the period. But also seems to kind of uh, have some typical assumptions in, in, in terms of gender. But also seems to be able to push in some ways beyond that and imagine, or at least participate in communities that themselves are um, moving beyond the typical uh, notions of gender and power.
2: Right. I think you know. I mean, one of the things that I've been really interested in as well is the way in which he uses of himself for himself language that is uh, that goes against gender norms. You know, he mm-hmm. speaks of himself as a nursing mother um uh, that 's pretty interesting so um I, for me what 's important about this is the way in which not, not that the not that everything Paul says is consistent on this question, right. uh, but that so many Christians I find uh especially women but not only women uh have experienced uh a kind of um, uh, hardening with respect to Paul, a resistance to Paul, on these lines, without understanding that the text is far more complicated and more encouraging um, than they might have imagined.
0: Yeah, there's almost a, there's almost blinders on, which um, which have as much to do with the text itself and how the text maybe has been used or how they've perceived the text. Uh, that 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 needs to be sort of dealt with Um, and
2: another one of those instances where we are shaped by what we've been taught people have been taught that Paul says you can't do this well then I don't like Paul right the problem is not Paul maybe the problem is the person who was teaching you yeah
1: yeah, yeah yeah I hear you. So yeah. so these uh, these two women, Yodia and Sintiki, are leaders in the church. Uh if they're being singled out by Paul, there's probably they probably have um uh, uh some power in the church. Um, but then also they're encouraged to have the same mind, which that word we've seen happen a couple times in Philippians, um, which uh is what was described as as what Paul wants us to have uh with Jesus in uh, you know in um, Philippians two with the hymn, um, so can you say a bit about like what, what does having one mind mean to you um, we've we 've talked talked about this a bit in, in previous weeks, but I think here, in terms of the practical application, we see an actual situation here what what do you think Paul is encouraging these women to do
2: um, i don't think we can be very specific about that in terms of what the conflict might have been over, but I do think it is um this mind shaped by Christ, uh, a mind that is um, amenable to, uh, to considering the other, you know. Uh, not, not to abandoning one's own view all the time, you know, it's, it, it's not a sort of suppression of the self. But I do think this, to have the same mind, means uh, to be willing to listen to the other. To 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 engage on behalf of the other, um, I, I, you know, I, it's really important not to confuse it with uniformity, which mm-hmm. is the way it sometimes uh, is used, and to use it as a as a kind of weapon to make other people come around to my view. Uh, but this uh, willingness to have a, a shared mindset, you know, that that has values shaped by. Well, the the Philippians hymn would be a good start.
1: I I was um, reading and my my wife Catherine read this and then I think saw a TV show that was made out of it, Um, but it's a Modern Love, this column in the New York Times um, that talks about different ways that love works in the modern world. Um, But there's this one um, uh, column that was then turned into a TV show, I think starring Tina Fey, um, but about this couple that uh, plays tennis together, Uh, that their therapist, they're having marriage problems and their therapist tells them you should play tennis together and they just start hitting the ball at each other as hard as they can competing. And the therapist uh, suggests to them, you should try to see if you can play tennis together as a team. Like, don't just try to beat the other person. And it was a metaphor for their life and their work together. It's not just that they had to be the same person. They, they could do even competitive things together, but can you see yourself as part of the same team in the midst of your striving and your struggle? And to me, that, that, that seemed to kind of resonate with a bit of what, what yeah. Yoda and Siddiqui are maybe going through. Um, but, you know, but not that they have to be the same person, but right. yeah, we're working together for something. We're struggling alongside each other for the gospel
0: yeah i i i i don't know where i read it or who said it but that this idea to to be of the same mind to to think the same thing it has has more to do with patterns of behavior and disposi- dispositions than it does with you know uh seeing seeing things in the same way or agreeing on all of these these dogmatic or theological principles but really it's it's a it's a matter of a pattern of behavior and that as as beverly you suggested is is sort of exemplified in the christ tim um which which i guess then we we would if we're doing a little uh reading behind the scenes or reading between the lines um we could we could we could wonder is is there is this a status are they are there are, is there an argument over status or about privilege um uh, because that would be sort of counter to the Christ ten. But again, we we can't know for certain. This would we would just have to say this is complete conjecture.
2: Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, and I, I'm I'm not fond of spending my time with just you know making these things up. Uh, I would say that in Romans, when Paul goes through that long discussion about the conflict over food, <clears throat> it, it's not so much that he wants them to come to the same practice. Right? He wants them eventually to, have to, to come to the same mind. Uh, but then what does he do? He concludes that passage with a prayer May God grant this to you. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that's where our discussions of that need to go, which is not just, well, let's see if we can't play. I mean, I like that, that story very much of playing on the same team. But theologically speaking, we always know that if we're able to get there, it's yeah. because God has taken us there. Right. Yeah. Not because we just tried a little harder every day. And I yeah. I think we need that that reminder of the 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 deeply theological location of Paul's work, mm-hmm. which is not about saying it's gotta be the right doctrine or dogma or anything of that sort, but it is a kind of theological center. Mm-hmm.
0: So we uh we can uh we can shift a little bit now to the to the the verses 4 through uh 9 or so and Brennan before we started going live said this is sort of you know a hotbed for christian aphorisms if 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 we were looking for for christian greeting cards this would be the place uh to source material and so um, you know, rejoice in the Lord always, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, but, but, you know, as you, as you said um, at the beginning, we don't read Philippians today like we did four months ago. And so how, how do you see these exhortations sort of uh, providing some framework for our response to life uh, during and, and following COVID and, uh, and this global pandemic that we're all a part of? Uh, how how do these words sound for you uh, in this context?
2: Well, you're absolutely right that it does sound a little bit like the place to go to get your Hallmark card, you know, or your American greeting card uh, to get your little cross stitch, you know, to, uh, uh, to put on the wall. Right. Uh, but again, we have to remember Paul's context, don't we? Uh, he was not writing... Uh, when things were on the up and up for himself, right? He's writing this from a form of captivity. Um, I was struck several years ago reading David McCullough's fabulous biography of John Adams that toward the end of his life, John Adams said, uh, wrote to his friend, Benjamin Rush and said, um, rejoice evermore. I think that was the translation. This will be my doctrine of the perfectibility of man, Mm. Um, and he was writing counter Rousseau and this whole notion that if you if you train up a person from youth, you can you can perfect the human. The human can be perfected, and Adams is saying not so much. Uh, Adams was not taken with that notion, uh, but he was taken with this notion of. Always rejoicing. Now, <clears throat> that sounds a little saccharine. When, when Adams wrote that, he was himself in very poor health. He had lost a bitterly contested uh, uh, bid for reelection as president, and one of his own sons had died probably as a result of alcoholism. So, this was a kind of determination, this was a, a declaration about where his life was located. No, my life is located in rejoicing in the Lord always, and I, I think that's um, that's not unlike what Paul is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we in in our flurry of interest over, <clears throat> excuse me, over Paul's theology on the one hand, or over studying Paul's communities on the other, we sometimes neglect the extent to which joy. Uh, not not happiness, you know, joy, uh, rejoicing, giving praise, giving thanksgiving, runs through Paul's letters. You yeah. know? And I, I, I think we shouldn't be surprised to see this here, that uh, no matter what, we know who and whose we are, and we know how to say thank you. You know, and that that is the first obligation of the creature, uh, to delight in God. Yeah.
0: So yeah. one of the one of the uh, assigned articles that we so we we have these two levels uh, of this class, and for those that registered, one of the articles that I think Brennan found was by Greg Boomquist on on um, and and it just really highlighted um, the pessimism of the age in which Paul lived, and just how surprising it would be not only given Paul's situation um, in. a a prison that may not have been an ideal situation and would most likely lead to his death, um, but, but also just the general cultural world was one of, well, was one of pessimism, I mean, uh, anxiety about dying and the reality of death, um, life expectancy being much shorter than, than what we have. Right. Um, uh, you know, we could but talk about the, economic concerns, all of these other things, and that- Yeah, and, that and the, also, the kind of status. Yeah, that Paul would, Paul would sort of inject joy into his letters, um, and into his life situation is, you know, we, I think we tend to live in a very pessimistic world by and large, or I mean a very optimistic world by and large. It's, you know, the old bootstraps myth, right? That, you know, everything's going to work out better. And just to, to hear Bloomquist argue for how different the first century world would have been was, was really powerful for me. Um to think about joy and rejoicing as a and as really being a counter-cultural sort yeah. of command
1: yeah yeah and his his um way of talking about how like the roman empire tries to counter that pessimism with its victory right, P- right. pompous displays of power and excess and wealth and the eternal youth of the emperors like augustus you know um like they're going to defeat death uh by either willing it away or their power or their wealth. you know and and how how different it is for paul who's finding his joy through you know in the midst of of what would seem like loss and grief uh, a period of loss and grief
2: and I, and by the way i think this is not just paul i mean one of the threats that you find uh in the book of acts in these disparate stories about the the spread of of, of the faith is every once in a while luke will say they went on their way rejoicing you know they went on their way rejoicing and we we tend to to uh, minimize these passages and run right past them, but I think they're I think they're important signal of uh not just what they thought things ought to be but what was actually going on in these communities uh, There is this sense of of delight in the word, and i I think that's um, something we we need to uh reappropriate it's not sort of it's not sort of American bootstrapism or optimism you know if I try a little harder. I'll make tomorrow will be better. I'll, I'll do better tomorrow. You know, well, that's not quite what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is um, I rejoice in the Lord, not in my own ability.
1: Yeah, And Beverly, as you pointed out earlier, I it, it mean, it, it is a gift, too, that he mentions here, this, that, yeah, that, that you know, God um, provides, but we have to kind of look to God in a way, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, uh, we can ignore this gift, uh, we can walk away from it, or we can embrace it, this gift of the ability to have joy in the midst of, of crisis, if that makes sense. Is that, uh, and?
2: Yes, right, exactly.
0: So I have a, I have a follow-up question, and and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, so you don't have to answer it. Um uh, but i think you can't answer it I, I i believe uh so in verse 5 um w- one of the things that we might say that grounds this um exhortation is this this warning or this statement that the lord is near and we could talk for hours about paul's understanding of the lord's return the what which is technically called the parousia um and whether or not it adjusts or or changes but w- we know that his sense of nearness in, in 50 or, or 60 uh, is different than our sense of nearness. And so what do we, how do we read this, you know, sort of grounding that we should do these things because the Lord is near, um, uh, and how do we read this as people reading this now 2,100 years later um, or 2,000 years later?
2: Well, we have a couple of models of how not to do it. So let me <laughs> deal with that first, right? Uh, one of the ways we ought, we ought not do it <clears throat> is uh, by coming up with a timetable, right, uh, which Christians have occasionally done. Uh, the thing that we have also done, and I think this is more dominant in mainline Christianity, Protestant Christianity in this country, is to pretend it's not there. You know, if we just don't notice that text, and I, I'm grateful to you for pointing it out, if we don't notice idea. the. <laughs> about the uh, about the eminence of the cr- return of Jesus then maybe they'll go away well of course what happens is not that they go away but that other people make a lot of them and then we don't know what to do with that mm-hmm. um, I think we have to say on this point Paul Paul had views that that were simply not not confirmed uh, by history mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that they're not important to us because right. there's sense in which there is this um, horizon, here I'm going to channel uh, the work of my own teacher, J. Lewis Martin, who talks about seeing God's triumph on the horizon uh, at a distance, even though uh, what we see right here, and certainly it is now, is death and suffering and struggle. And it's not that this is like pie in the sky, by and by, but we... But we live out of that tension, and we we know God God's triumph is real, uh, and that allows us to deal, to live in the present. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's good. It's a super. I mean, this is one of those places where yeah, it, it, it's so much easier just to ignore it and pretend like it's not there. Um, uh, or I guess it's also really easy to to live in the sort of timetable mentality that you know, you know, and a lot of that is happening in COVID, right? A lot of it is people are certain, certain parts of Christianity are saying, look, this, you know, this is the end of the world, y'all. This, is, we've got all these signs. There there may not be locusts, you know, demon locusts, but there's, you know, other things. Um, and so prepare yourself, repent. The day of the Lord is here, um, which is again, another sort of extreme and, the, the, the off the, the position that you're offering is much more nuanced, um, uh, way of dealing with it. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah. And, um, so, so Paul moves on from his exhortations where he talks a lot about peace and that God is going to give peace. God is peace. God gives peace. This peace surpasses all of our understanding. We can't even understand it or grasp it and so on. It's going to, but, but it's there for us if we keep doing these things. And, uh, and, and, and in a way, uh, being open to receiving this gift of God's peace. Um, but then he moves on also to talk about gifts, other kinds of gifts, uh, the Philippians um, gifts uh, that they have given him. And he seems to say uh, two things here in verses uh, 10 um, through 20, really, um, that, he, that he, he's appreciative of the gift, but he kind of wants the Philippians to stop giving him gifts. Um, can you say more, Beverly, about just uh, Paul and gift giving in general, perhaps, but also about here, what what exactly is um, th- does he what does he want to do uh, or what does he want the Philippians to do?
2: Well, I think he, he relies in part, excuse me, on their generosity. I'm sorry. Not all of the pollen is in Georgia.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Although a lot of it is, but I, yeah, right.
2: We're
0: we're happy to
1: share, happy to share.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: right. Thank you. You can keep that. Um, (laughs) I think he is, uh, recogn- Paul is in a, a bind about this, because on the one hand, he relies to a certain extent on their hospital uh, on generosity right um, gift giving i mean support of the ministry is crucial, um, and all of his letters all of, well all of the letters that we recognize as authentic have something to say about uh, financial support for the ministry, whether it's Paul's own ministry or the collection for Jerusalem, which we can come back and talk about if you want to. Um, But there's also uh, this fear that if he, um, I think if he seems to be asking for money, then he's a charlatan, right? On the other hand, in 2 Corinthians, uh, it becomes clear that some people have said he won't take our money because he knows he's a charlatan, so he's living in this little narrow uh, swatch there between uh, those who might be suspicious if he doesn't take money, and those who are suspicious if he asks for money. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he wants to be self-sufficient. That is a th- th- that is a goal of his. <clears throat> uh, not to be. Uh, regarded as uh, relying on them, and yet he has to, he has to have that.
1: And uh, so, yeah, this is kind of benefactor. We talked about the kind of relationship and structures of benefactors, and um, uh, like in Corinthians, talks about Chloe's people, these kind of households, um, and seeing yourself as part of a household. In fact, there's a really interesting reference to Caesar's household yes. that gives greetings here, which I wanted to uh, be sure to ask you about. I mean, not that we can know anything about this really, but just to mention it is really fascinating. Um, yeah. But also that, uh, that, that Paul um, uh, is, is financially dependent upon people. We talked about how he has a large, I mean, there's like some 40 people who are mentioned as being part of his, um, his group and, and this, this group of spreading the gospel that needs resources. Um, but that also, yeah, he's, uh, um, he is caught in a kind of a double bind. I mean, and like some pastors are, right? They don't want to ask too much for money, but they don't want to not ask for money. And it right. strikes me that Paul one time is in 1 Corinthians that he says that, like, he quotes Jesus, but it's not in the Gospels, but seeing that, like, you know, pastors should ask for money, basically. Um,
2: right. Uh, yeah, That you, you, you can't get by without that. But the interesting thing is he never, I mean, even 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, just sort of the, the, the classic text. For, for fundraisers. Paul as the fundraiser, right? right. Um, he, he always uses cultic language, mm-hmm. right? which shouldn't be too surprising. uh, But I think it's important for us to notice that that also locates um, what he's asking for, not just in terms of what he needs. I I need peanut butter on the table. You know, I need to put food on the table. But it's also uh, whose ministry is this, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also always uh, for and about about the gospel. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the, the giving of it, is uh is a cultic act it's it's an act of worship
1: yes it it strikes me and you mentioned the cultic language in verse 18 the fragrant uh, offering which also is the word yodia for the 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 name of the woman in for in chapter 4 verse 2 but the name of this kind of fragrant offering and um as an old testament uh scholar this kind of uh sets me off thinking about uh these the, the gifts in the old testament that were offered up on the altar which was a giant barbecue so if people like barbecue, uh, you know, we're getting near Memorial Day, right? Uh, but that was what it was, a giant uh, a, a kind of barbecue pit with a big grate on it and coals, and they would they would cook the food. And in the ancient world, uh, most of uh, this kind of barbecuing of food on altars was uh, a gift to the gods, and the gods would be understood to eat them. And, of course, I, I love that part of a, a Daniel, Bell and the Dragon, the kind of additional part of Daniel that Protestants cut out. To their own dismay, because it's a great part. But the f- world's uh, world's first ever locked room mystery, uh, where Daniel figures out that it's the priests who act of, of Baal, uh or, or Baal, who really are eating the food, right um, at night. Um, but but in, in Leviticus uh, uh, and in other uh, Old Testament texts, uh, it's clear that God doesn't eat the food. Um, that the priests eat the food. The priest families eat the food. And in fact, the people who have. Uh, committed sins and 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 the people that they have offended uh, get together and eat the food together so it 's like a reconciliatory feast um, but it 's also something that really is for the community, but God smells it and likes that odor and so that seems a little bit uh applicable here right it's this it 's a gift to God that helps the community god doesn 't need the money um, but it 's the giving of the gift that both sustains and helps the community and it also in some way makes God happy or something.
2: Uh, That's a a wonderful connection. And I I think it also, what you just said, helps us to to appreciate why there are such intense problems over in Corinth about uh, whether we're going to participate in these Mm -hmm. community gatherings. Because on the one hand, if you are going to eat meat in Paul's world, it is likely to have been sacrificed to some God. Well, I don't believe that God exists. So bring on the pork right? <laughs> yeah. um, or the brisket. You know, I live in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, for some people, that that knowledge that this belongs to that God is deeply undermining. Mm-hmm. So we should understand that this was a terrible problem, uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a real problem, not just a, it, it. we say just a theological problem. It was a yeah. problem. It was a problem in, in many directions. Yeah. Uh, it was a social, it was probably an economic problem. If I can't go to that barbecue, Joe down the street is going to get in with the host and I won't uh, be able to. You know, I mean, there, there are real, there are um, multi, multiple layers to, the, to this issue.
1: I, I once heard of a car salesman in Georgia who uh, belonged to all of the churches in town and showed up to one of them every week you know, the Lutheran church and, you know, in order to sell cars to everybody. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps a, a cynical use of a of, of sacrifice, but in any event, um, yeah. Uh, but th- so that, 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 that does, I think, help put the kind of gift giving um, in context uh, in terms of what is expected, but also what people thought the benefits of some of this um, gift giving and sacrifice uh, were so that these are, in a way, when we give of ourselves to the community and to the work of the gospel that we are participating in this um, Offering to God that smells good to God in some way, um, Yeah, euodia the fragrant fragrant scent, um, so uh, in any event, um, uh, I do want to ask just before we finish, uh, he, Paul ends with kind of a typical uh, conclusion and, and benediction and blessing, but does anyone have any thoughts about the emperor 's household? I mean I know that the emperor 's household is is more than just like the, the caesar 's kids you know um, uh, <laughs> you know it 's this big structure that we talked about with patrons and, and so it can extend in many different places but why is Paul saying this? And he doesn't give many greetings from and to other people. I, I love uh, Beverly how you point out that you know there's no just a list of people, right? At the end of Romans 16, that that's full of theology, it's full of practice, right. and it's really important. But here, Paul doesn't do that much with with what with that space. But he does mit- single out the emperor. Is there any reason you think, or anything we can know?
2: Um, I, I this gets us into the question about about where. Philippians is written? Is it is it written in Rome? Is it written from Caesarea? You know, where where is he and how does he have contact? Um, I, I suspect if we're talking about the emperor's household, we're not talking about, as you said, the emperor's kids or even their pals. We're probably talking about people uh in the slave quarters. Uh, but but I don't know. Uh Chris?
0: Yeah, no, I mean this is this is one of those. I think fascinating places where we can't, we can't get that far. Um, I mean, beyond, I think the, the point is a good one that, that the Greek word there, means more than just like our understanding of a nuclear family. It's not like uh, it would be wrong, right? Beverly, to your point earlier, it would most likely be wrong to read this text as saying, wow, look, the gospel has even made it into Caesar's family. I think that would be categorically wrong. Um, But to say, uh, just as, Chloe, as uh, is it Chloe, yeah, Chloe's people in First cool. Corinthians probably means a very large group of people that are affiliated with the, that with Chloe. Here, it's probably some large group that is associated with the emperor. Um, and I, I think my hunch would be go to, to go with the slaves as well. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't know if we can know anything beyond that.
1: That's interesting. It just, it strikes me that there's a lot of uh, citizenship and Polis language throughout Philippians and the mention of uh, the Christ hymn and Adele Arbor Collins' uh, suggestion that the Christ hymn may be kind of an inversion of an emperor hymn, uh, what a theologos would say about an emperor. So here, the mention of the emperor, uh, it just strikes, it's all suggestive. I don't know. Yeah, but it, it, uh, it was an interesting bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. actually, Aaron, Aaron Mack also offers another, you know, suggestion in the comments that uh, you know, are these are these representatives who are holding Paul captive? Does does the reference to you know the 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 household of the empire who are with him are these are these people that are maybe his his guards? And again, it's maybe yeah. it's not without without it, it's within the realm of possibilities, but Absolutely. we probably yeah. can't know yeah. any any more certainly.
1: So, Beverly, we didn't tell you we were going to do this, but uh, uh, and so feel free to throw it back to us. But um, we have a couple minutes left here. We're finishing Philippians. Do you have any concluding words about the book of Philippians, the letter uh, that Paul wrote? I mean, uh, anything that we should—if you're going to sum it up in like a word or a phrase, um, uh, what, what what would you what would what would you say to, to an MDiv student who says, "What's Philippians all about?"
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you could do a lot worse than rejoice in the Lord always, mm-hmm. um, especially if—but if you said rejoice in the Lord. Uh, the one who uh, took on the form of a slave, right? uh, the one who uh, sacrificed himself, um, it, it, and, and locate ourselves in that story, that, that narrative uh, about Jesus himself. Um, and, I, and I think I would want to draw attention to the end of that, that hymn, if it is a hymn, uh, and the, the declaration, you know, n- not that believers are deified, I, I really find that quite problematic. But that declaration that we join ourselves with all those uh, who bend the knee uh, and who uh, recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, I, I, th- I think that's where Philippians lives, you know, uh, even now. You know, even now for Paul, and even now for us, uh, that that we are that's that's where we find ourselves. Yeah.
0: Awesome. awesome. That's, that's that's awesome. Uh, pure
1: gold from Beverly Gaventa. Pure gold.
0: <laughs> Beverly, thank you so much um, thank you, thank you. for being with us uh, today and for sharing your time with us, but just so much of your your wisdom and perspective on on this text and uh, about reading the New Testament and the Bible more generally. Um, before we close, uh, Brennan, uh, we should say one more time that starting on May the 31st, uh, we will be, we will be transitioning to the old Testament, uh, to study some of the book of Job. And, um, we will be, we'll be giving more information as, as the week's approach, but did you want to say anything more about that study on Job before we, we sign off?
1: Yes, we're gonna have uh, some amazing scholars to join us. Uh, Christine Yoder uh, from Columbia Theological Seminary will join us on May 31st. We will also have uh, Carol Newsom uh, from Emory University, Chu Liang Seao from Vanderbilt University, Brent Strawn from Duke, uh, and Safwat Marzouk uh, from Associated Mennonite Biblical uh, Seminary. So we have uh, tons of amazing people uh, who will be joining us uh, for uh, what I, I promise will be an interesting, um, and uh, perhaps we won't answer all your questions, right? So why do bad things happen to good people? I promise you, I won't. I won't tell you the answer to that at the end of Job. However, it's a. a it, it'll be a, an. A, I think interesting book to study in this time, a time of crisis, a time of dismay, um, a time where we might want to ask. Uh, if Philippians is one side of the equation, how do we rejoice in the Lord always? Job is the other side of the of the, of the equation, um, which is. Uh, uh, what is our response when there is uh, terror and suffering? Uh, so at any event, this is, uh, I think, uh, um, uh, it, it'll, it'll be a nice bookend for the Old Testament uh, to, to follow up on Philippians. So thanks to yeah. everybody Thank for being a part yeah. of this. Yeah,
0: And I also, I wanna express uh, our gratitude to uh, the fairies or whoever controls technology. Apparently, I don't know, Brennan, if you know this, but there is like a worldwide outage of Zoom right now. We, we may be the only <laughs> Zoom meeting that is happening. Uh, and so uh, oh. we are grateful that technology was in our side. Uh, you know
1: what it was? It was Beverly Gaventa.
0: <laughs> that's what <laughs> it, it was. We it together.
1: <laughs> it was that, right, yeah, it was that, uh, you know, the Lord said, if there's one Zoom meeting that's going to happen today, it's going to be this one. Well, anyway, Beverly, thank you so much for taking <laughs> your you precious time to share with us. Um, we are delighted that you were here with us, and uh, we look forward to maybe having you back again sometime soon.
0: Yeah, and thanks to all of those watching on Facebook and who will who will take advantage later. Um, it's been a pleasure doing this. So we'll see you later, y'all. Peace, thanks. y'all.